0: You are listening to RootBound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside.
1: RootBound would not be possible without the support of fake advertising. I can't believe I have done a year's worth of these things.
0: Everybody, thank you so much for listening to this, the 52nd episode of Rootbound. That means if you've been listening each week for the last 52 weeks, this is the celebration of one year of this podcast. So thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Steve. If you didn't already know, Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who shares with me about a plant that means something to them. And I share with a guest, about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now, because this is a special episode celebrating a year and all, um, I think we're going to make it also a bit of a special episode that kind of doesn't follow the normal format of inviting a guest and talking to them about plants that mean something to them. This is a mixed greens episode. We've had one of those in the past already. It's a little bit of a grab bag episode where we go back and discuss some plants that we've already discussed maybe cover some dazzling details or fun facts that we might have missed. And it's just kind of a little bit of a miscellaneous episode, and I think you'll very much enjoy it. But before we get into the show today, I just wanted to humbly come to you, the listener, and ask for your support. Now, Rootbound is not public radio. It is an independent podcast. If you donated the show, there is no tax deduction, just to be clear. But I am a big fan of public radio, and if you listen to the show, you might get a little hint of the style. I feel like RootBound is a little bit public radio-y in the way it sounds. Um, But I'm also a big fan of the model of public radio, where if you find value in something, you can go and support it directly. You know, cut out the middleman of advertising on RootBound. We only have fake ads, and fake ads are, are great but they don't pay the bills, and if you like Rootbound, you can now come and support Rootbound directly. So, if you've been listening to this podcast for the last year, or, or less, and you've thought, hey, I really like this show, I'm really getting good entertainment value from it, think about going to rootboundpodcast.com support, click on the link to take to the Patreon page, and chip in with whatever amount you want. There's a few different tiers there that you can see on the Patreon page, um, But but honestly, anything that you would like to support the show, I would be So, so, so grateful. And because I'm a fan of public radio, I've always wanted to give away a tote bag. And this is my chance, hosting this little independent podcast, to give away a tote bag. So if you support the show at the highest tier, which is at the $20 a month um, level, which is, if you think about it, just $5 per episode. So if this show is worth that much to you, you can get a limited edition, special root-bound tote bag, I'm still working on the design, but it's going to be ready uh, pretty soon. So um, keep your eye open for that. And, you know, if you can support the show, great. But if you're not in the position to support, I totally understand that. But I just wanted to come to you, the audience, humbly to ask you for your support. I, don't, I won't do this very much. That's another thing about, you know, public radio. I like that they, they don't do that too often of coming and asking you. But yeah, I, I do like the fact that if you you find something you really value, you can Support it. So, thank you for taking the time for me to ask you for your support. And with that, let's get on to the mixed greens episode of Rootbound. Additional support for Pawnee Public Radio comes from the Edgar C. and Janice R. Lumway Foundation and the Richard and Lois Wallenberg Foundation. Foundation dedicated to the idea that all human beings deserve a chance to hear about foundations. Listeners of the show might remember my friend Raluca from back on episode 9. Well, I recently gave her a call to talk about a plant that we discussed in a different episode that she has some direct connection to. So let's cut over to that call that I had with her recently. Back on episode 26 of the podcast, I talked about a plant that I called Berlauch, which I first come to understand, which I first came to understand in Switzerland. It's also its common name in English in Europe is Ramsons and it is the cousin of the American plant called ramps. And I mentioned uh, that I had some friends that knew about it in Romania, and I'm talking to one of those friends right now, Raluca, uh, who you might remember from episode nine of the podcast where she talked about corn, but Raluca uh, has some personal experience with this plant ramsons or berlauch, or in its uh, name in Romanian is... Laurda. Leurda. La okay. Uh, well, yeah, tell me about this plant. What What's your experience with leurda?
2: Well, hello, hello. First of all, nice to see you again. Thanks for having me again. Um, so on Laurda. Um I discovered it pretty late in, in life. I think I was in early 20s. I had already moved to Transylvania, to Cluj, to university. And I saw it in the market. If you remember the markets in Romania, with the old ladies that sell you flowers and sell you lots of stuff that they've grown in the garden, it was the same. It was basically these old ladies just selling lower and I was like, "What is this?" Um, and I discovered it, and I was completely hooked. <laughs> I was like, "This is amazing! Why we didn't you know about it?" Um, so that was my first introduction to it, and then I started digging a little bit around it initially i was using it mostly in salads so it's usually spring salads um with radishes and green onions and some lettuce and a bit of olive oil we also have the um the cow's cheese um that is aged and salty we call it telema i don't know if you've ever had it when you visited
0: it rings a bell yes it rings a bell
2: it's a little bit similar to feta, maybe oh, not yes, as yes, smooth yes. and silky. Well, if you ask my Greek partner, you'll probably hear, like, it's not like feta at all, but, <laughs> you know, it's close enough.
0: I think I did have some of that, like, in the in the country once, but maybe not the exact same. I think it had a different name, but we had it with, with uh, we just dipped it in rock salt, this cheese, and ate it mm.
1: that
2: way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you can have it like back that as plant. well. <laughs> back to the lower. there. So yeah, that was my uh, first discovery of of it, and you know, ever since I I started experimenting with it. So, um, in spring when it comes out, so you can harvest the little leaves, but you can also harvest the bulbs, and they're a little bit garlicky. And then towards the end of the spring, after it flowers, it creates like this little green seeds they look a little bit like coriander seeds and you can pickle them similar to capers and you can oh, make wow. like uh lower the capers
0: oh, yeah that's a cool idea
2: this is um this is a recipe that i took from um there is this channel called uh I think I told you previously oh, you about did. it. I, 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 I follow
0: heard. that Instagram channel now. It's awesome. I mean, I have to hit the translate button on Instagram yeah. every now and then because it's all in Romanian, but it, it's amazing.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's I'll put like a link a, in the show notes. It's it's a mix of foraging and like cooking with wild plants. So if you're looking for inspiration to cook with Lourda, that's the best place to go.
0: Okay. Two more questions about Lourda. One, do you know, and it's okay if you don't know this, but do you know anything about the name, why it's called that, what that name means in Romanian?
2: Not really. I did look it up. Uh, I couldn't find any connection between how we call it Leurda and its actual name, which is Allium Orsinum or something like this, which mm-hmm. is Bears Leeks. Mm-hmm. So the The Latin name is obviously an allium. It's from the family, but I have no idea why we called it like that. Maybe it's um, Russian influence or um, some other influences in the language.
0: It has nothing to do with the Romanian word for money, which is uh, leu, right? No.
2: It would be great if you could make a lot of money off lower the right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, and then the other thing is, which I think I was messaging with, these, with you when I was working on the episode about this, is that you're right. The name, the Latin name, is Allium ursinum, which means bear's leek. And mm. when I first encountered it in Switzerland, the name in German is Berlauch, which means bear leek. Mm. And there is this story or myth, or I don't know if it's truthful that uh, that bears eat it. And I don't know if you have any like idea about that. Is I mean, there's lots of bears in Romania.
2: It's the same story around Romania. Apparently, bears do eat the bulbs when they come out in spring from hibernation, but I don't know if if that's true.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things that I I've read over and over again. But I would love to just see a video of a bear eating some. <laughs> anyway, well, it might, it might,
2: yeah. definitely come to Romania. <laughs>
0: I, next time uh, I come that will be my goal uh, first of all I've been to Romania many times but I've never seen a bear somehow and uh, so my goal will be I'm going to look for a bear eating Leurda.
2: definitely springtime when they come out of hibernation just stalk them somehow and see if that happens and the story's true just doing some fact checking
0: <laughs> very good well well, thanks for telling me about that awesome plant
2: great thank you so much thanks for having me
0: I think podcasts about plants rarely have cliffhangers, but I did leave you, the listener, with a cliffhanger at the end of episode 34 of the show when I talked with my friend Rebecca about poison ivy. And if you've listened to that episode, you'll recall at the beginning of the show, I purposely rubbed some poison ivy on my arm. And then at the end of the episode, I had no reaction, but it was only a few hours after it occurred. And I mentioned that sometimes that reaction can take a lot longer, so I wasn't 100% sure whether I was going to have a reaction or not. So here it is the answer many months later, I never got a poison ivy reaction. Now, I don't think that means necessarily that I'm immune to poison ivy like... Rebecca shared that she was and that her mom was also immune to the reaction of poison ivy. Um, and I don't think I'm going to try it again to, to find out. Um, it could be that I that I don't react to poison ivy, or it could be that the plant just wasn't really oily at the time. The The, the leaves aren't always the same level of that oil or and so that's a possibility and then also i did shower that evening and so it is possible that i didn't get the reaction yet and i was able to wash it off uh, in time and i I think i mentioned that episode that's one really good tip if you do think you've been exposed to poison ivy if you wash that area really well with soap within a few hours you're often not going to get that reaction so i never got the reaction I don't know what poison ivy is like, but I'm also not sure that I'm immune or not, and uh, that is the resolution of this plant podcast cliffhanger. Back on episode 45 of Rootbound, we talked about the prickly pear cactus with Will, and uh, after listening to it, my wife Carla, who you remember from the Mint episode and many of the Seasons episodes, had some other fun facts and dazzling details about the prickly pear to share. Carla, would you like to share with us some other things about the prickly pear?
3: Sure. Yeah, when I was listening to the Prickly Pear episode, which I enjoyed very much, um, it, it just reminded me that the Prickly Pear cactus is such like a... It's just such an integral part of Mexican culture. And so I just wanted to give you some additional fun facts and dazzling details, which is, in fact, the Prickly Pear cactus is part of the coat of arms of Mexico. Oh, yeah. So if you notice, the Mexican flag has a coat of arms... In the middle and that is an, a golden eagle holding a snake and it is standing on a prickly pear cactus and so as you know some listeners might know um the the tale of the of the founding of mexico city is that the the, the god uh to instructed his followers to just keep being you know keep going keep migrating until they found they found a place um, in which there would be an eagle, and then the eagle would be eating a snake, and it would be standing on a prickly pear cactus, um, and so that's that's and that's would be the founding of Mexico City. Or back back in those days, um, it would be Tenochtitlan. So um, you know the the pre-Columbian great city of the Mexica Empire. So um, of course that is a very um, simplified version of the tale Mm -hmm. that is told to kids in Mexico when you know you're little and you're like in first grade or second grade um naturally the the tale is far more complex um but you know we don't we don't have to get into it. The whole you know, I can certainly come back and talk about it in further detail, um, <laughs> like at some other point. But what reminded me um, is that it's the prickly pear cactus um, is the place that the eagle is standing on.
0: That's very true. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I now I remember this Im- this cool image, and I'll put a link somewhere in the show notes so if you haven't seen it. This picture of the eagle standing on top of the prickly pear cactus. One last thing before we go. What is the word for prickly pear in Spanish? Tuna. Tuna. Oh, that's right. That's tuna. <laughs> I, re- I remember that the first time I was in, a, I think it was in Mexico or somewhere else in Latin America, and I went to a juice shop, and they're like, tuna, Hugo de, de Tuna. And I was like, Hugo de Tuna? What is that? <laughs> but yes, that is the name of the prickly pear. It is not a fish.
3: No, in um, in Spanish, uh, tuna, like the fish, tuna is a tun.
0: Ah, right, right.
3: Uh, And tuna is a prickly pear. Very good.
0: Okay. (laughs) So, if you ever see uh, tuna juice on a menu, feel free to get it. It should be pretty tasty. Exactly, yeah. On the subject of cacti, I was recently listening to the album Hunky Dory by David Bowie. And there's a song on that album called Eight Line Poem, which is exactly what it says it is. It is a song with eight lines, and that's it it's got some instrumental at the beginning at the end it's a very i really like the song and the lyrics kind of spoke to me particularly when thinking about this podcast Uh, i'm not quite sure why i won't get into um poetry analysis here but i thought that instead of just playing the song because it is a little bit long and those eight lines are stretched throughout the whole middle part of the song i would just read you the lyrics read you the eight lines and then we can continue with the program So here it is, Eight-Line Poem by David Bowie from the album Hunky Dory with a little bit of the instrumental from the end of the song just to give us some texture. The tactful cactus by your window Surveys the prairie of your room The mobile spins to its collision Clara puts her head between her paws They've opened shops down the west side. Will all the cacti find a home? But the key to the city is in the sun that pins the branches to the sky. On episode 37 of the show, I joined my friend Sebi as we searched the forests for the elusive fruit, the pawpaw. And after we were driving back from pawpaw collecting, we had some conversations in the car that didn't quite make it into that episode. So I thought I would share that conversation with you now. (laughs) Um, we're in the car driving away from the pawpaw patch, and Sebby just said something very interesting about another thing that makes pawpaws special. What were you saying?
1: Oh well, we were just talking about how pawpaws are like the ultimate anti-capitalist fruit <laughs> because of their basically non-existent shelf life and they're really difficult to grow. I mean, I, I know you have a couple I tried, tried to grow and it didn't work. I've seen a, I've, I've I've seen a lot of people try to grow them and it not work and. Uh,
0: They're also only ripe for like two weeks in September, which is not great for a commercial fruit.
1: At all. I mean, but that's how a lot of nature works, though, is that Mm -hmm. you have like extreme abundance in certain seasons, and during that season you eat just a lot of what is abundant at that time. And, uh, you know, I think pawpaws are are pretty resistant to uh, commercialization for a bunch of reasons. The seasonality, the shelf life, and then also even to get them down... You have to shake the tree and then it's almost impossible to predict where the pawpaw will land. And usually multiple pawpaws will fall off of a ripe tree. And when they fall, they they land pretty hard and it's like a soft, ripe fruit, you know, so pretty much every pawpaw in our bag today is bruised in some like major way. And one of them's like actually kind of half splatted, <laughs> which if you're snacking in the woods or, you know, when you get home, it's no problem, but there's no way you can market something like that.
0: Yeah. That, that's very true. I never think about it. Also, the, the fact that you have to shake the tree, like the papa only is, you only get the fruit when the papa tree is ready to give you the fruit, right? Not like other things where you're taking it at will. It has this like uh, built-in kind of like moderator of saying, no, here, you will. the fruit is ready when I'm ready.
1: Right. I mean, it's not like a tomato where you pick it green and then it ripens, or a banana where you pick it green and it ripens on the counter. I mean, it really is only ready when it's ready. And actually, it's interesting how that, when you shake an unripe tree, and we saw a lot of that today, you will see those heavy, you know, tennis ball-sized fruits holding on by a tiny stem on a spindly tree, and they'll be, like, holding on for dear life. Like, they will not come off if they're not ready to come off.
0: Yeah. I mean... And the few cases that they do, which we had a case where you shake the tree kind of extra hard <laughs> and you, f- you you like, coerce them to fall, you're not going to be able to eat them, right? So there's, I think there's some, like, poetry there of, like, the, the poetry of the pawpaw. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the poetry of the pawpaw. And then the other side, on the consumer side, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, it's... it's you could say it's prettier on the inside than on the outside, but it's not really pretty on the inside <laughs> sure, either. Sure, <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, well, once you actually, you know, get a ripe fruit in your hand, you know, it's not like an orange where you peel it and it comes out in beautiful, perfect, little, easy sections. I mean, it, it's like a lot of sort of picking and scooping and cutting, and you got to suck on the seeds, really, to get the, the flesh off and then kind of scrape and eat around. So, it's it's just inherently messy you know there's no real neat way to do it and i think processing would be really hard too we were talking about yeah you would need some kind of really specialized equipment to really process it
0: yeah you need the right tool i use like a old school conical food mill it's basically like a, a sieve that is in a cone shape and you use like a, a like a muddler kind of thing to like press out all the pulp and then you can use the pulp or you can just eat them whole Um, And it can be a little bit challenging. It sounds like maybe we're trying to sell you like that pawpaws aren't cool, but they are cool. And everyone I've ever met who knows about pawpaws is a little bit obsessed with pawpaws.
1: (laughs) Well, for me, the nostalgia with pawpaws, and I think the way they're best enjoyed, which is the way God intended, is like, it's pawpaw season, you have your secret little patch, you go with your friends, you shake the trees, you gather up as many as you can, you sit down on like a log swatting flies and just messily scarf down as many as you can before your face starts hurting from how sweet they are and you know it's like that you know mid-September sort of humid sort of swampy Maryland uh, climate in sort of a wet patch of the forest and um, sitting there picking apart these like funky little fruit I mean that's sort of the best moment to enjoy them and then of course as many as you take home you know eat as many as you can but it's it's really just that that feeling of sort of uh it being an activity not just a food yeah Uh, something that you go and do and you really have to enjoy it in its time in its place and and with a group of people like kind of like crabs really you know yeah it's like the
0: the fruit has its moment and you need to like enjoy the moment it's yeah very true the subject of nectar has come up quite a few times on the podcast and that's because if you've listened to the show you know that i'm a beekeeper and well nectar is what eventually becomes honey in a beehive so very relevant to me as a beekeeper Uh, but it's also you know something that's made by plants and so i think very relevant to this podcast and because of that i had the idea to reach out to my friend and beekeeping mentor steve repaski to share with us some of his Favorite nectar sources for honey through the different seasons. So let's hear from Steve now.
4: This is Steve Rapaski, EAS certified master beekeeper and owner of Meadowsweet Apiaries. As far as nectar sources are concerned, I have several that are my favorites and and even more so the honeybee favorites, uh, mostly because of the variety that they produce in terms of honey and also the times of years that uh, they are produced uh, here in western Pennsylvania. Two of my most favorite late spring and early summer nectar sources are tulip poplar and black locust. And um, with tulip poplar, uh, one of the most fascinating things along that nectar source is just the copious amounts of nectar that it will uh, produce. The flower itself from the tulip poplar is a, hence the name, tulip-looking type of a flower with orange and white. Uh, but the nectar itself is a, a darker nectar and it produces a really nice, dark, rich color. Um, tasting type of a honey. Uh, Very prevalent. The unfortunate thing is it doesn't bloom every year. It's it's inconsistent depending on the weather. Uh, But that also ties into my other favorite nectar source, which is black locust. Uh, Black locust also produces a copious amount of nectar if the temperatures are right, the weather is right. Uh, Black locust is typically blooming in late May here in western Pennsylvania. Uh, Great clusters of white flowers uh, that are Have a great odor to them when they're blooming and producing nectar. You could smell them everywhere, and the honeybees will actually bring in many, many pounds of nectar every day that that black locust is is uh, blooming. Uh, The unique thing with black locust is that uh, typically you need cool temperatures, Uh, so low to mid sixties, maybe low seventies, dry. If it gets too hot, the flowers will shrivel. If it's too cold. They, they basically die off very quickly, and it's a short lifespan. Uh, but those are two of my favorite nectar sources in the spring, which is tulip, poplar, and black locust. Uh, as we skip over summer, we move into my other favorite time of the year, which is the fall. And typically in the fall, my most favorite nectar sources there uh, are wingstem, which is a wetland plant. Uh, the asters, which is typically an end-of-the-season type of a plant. And then the goldenrod. And everybody's familiar with goldenrod because we see fields and fields of this this yellow golden flower. Um, a very good nectar-producing plant for the honeybees. A very nice honey that's produced. Uh, and But the wingstem and the asters, I think, are two of the for, forgotten nectar sources uh, when it comes to um, honeybees and, and what they're collecting. Wingstem being a wetland plant is... Typically seen on, along um, wet areas, creeks, swamps, those types of areas. Uh, it's not quite uh, sunflower looking, but uh, more daisy looking, if you will. Uh, but it's a very bright yellow plant, can't miss it. Six, seven, eight feet tall. Uh, the bees really love it. it. Produces a very nice, light. Um, nectar, which produces a light golden honey. Um, and then, of course, with the asters, they're the, the purples and, and the white asters that are most prevalent in late September and early October here, uh, produce also a very light colored honey. Um, all these different sources are, are really nice out there, and these are just scratching the surface of some of my favorites. But uh, in the springtime, tulip poplar and black locust, fantastic nectar sources, fantastic trees. Um, for a number of different pollinators, and then we always fast forward to the fall, which is my favorite time of the year. But the wingstem, the goldenrod, and the asters are a great nectar source, not only for the honeybees but for other pollinators, uh, as well as some of the other insects that will forage um, on those plants. You know, you get crab spiders that like to hide in the goldenrod and feed on. Um, you know, take advantage of these pollinators that are collecting nectar uh, as a predator-prey relationship. Um, but the colors are fantastic. The, the odors are fantastic. And of course, in the end result, the nectar that's collected produces a very nice honey uh, that everybody can enjoy and the bees can overwinter on. So some of my favorite nectar sources here in southwestern Pennsylvania.
0: That was Steve Repasci telling us about his favorite nectar sources. If you want to learn more about Steve Repasci, his website is meadowsweetbees.com. Lots of awesome bee information there. So thanks again, Steve. We're drawing close to the end of this special episode of Root Bound. And in the penultimate segment, I would like to transport you, the audience, to a recent holiday party. Take it away, Steve, from the holiday party. So uh, this is the time on the podcast, uh, which occurs on regular intervals, where I uh, uh, force my friends and family to drink strange beverages that I've created. And... <laughs> What I have to, in front of me, which Carla is, uh, is pouring for everybody, is a small mason jar that was a little over half full of a slightly yellowish liquid <laughs> that I created. And listeners, were rem- <laughs> right. yeah. and listeners will remember on the episode where I talked about apples, I talked about making my own... Uh, apple cider, which was provided by my friend Mark, who was here at the table, he brought some cider, some fresh apple cider that he brought, and I wild fermented it with some uh, yeast from the mead that I often make. But then I talked about the loophole in the United States alcohol laws. You cannot distill alcohol uh, legally in the United States, but you can do what is called freeze fractional freezing, or what would be the proper way to say that, Carla?
3: Fractional crystallization?
0: There you go, fractional crystallization, which is essentially separating out the the water from the alcohol by freezing it. So this is a beverage which is called Applejack. Mm. And I took the cider that I made and I took a portion of it and I put it in the freezer and several times I poured off the liquid and left behind the ice. And that essentially uh, concentrated the alcohol content. And I don't know what the percentage of this is, it's it's probably only about twenty, and well, so I know I know the way that I did it. I did it. It's because uh, the amount of liquid I started with versus the amount of liquid I ended with was four to one. So this has a four times concentration of 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 alcohol. So it's at least twenty percent. It could be as high as as uh as twenty twenty four percent, twenty five percent. So it's not like it's not like whiskey. But anyway, this is my Applejack. The other thing I mentioned in the episode is that that when you distill stuff, you're able to separate out the, um, the, uh, the, the methanols head. from the oh, which ethanol. Are the ethanol. Yes. Which are the heads, yeah. Well, when you do Applejack, that doesn't happen. So that's why no. we're only drinking a small amount because potential for hangover is higher with this uh, alcohol. Yay! <laughs> Well, let's try it, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Enjoy so the, the color, Applejack. The color
1: is hay color. It's the same color well, as my cider.
3: Thank you. Cheers.
0: So here we are at the final segment of this special mixed greens and one-year celebration of Rootbound. And in this segment, I want to flash back to episode 18 of the podcast when I talked with my friend Sean about crepe myrtle and goosefoot. But at the beginning of that episode... I talked about how the first computer to ever sing a song sang the song Daisy. Um, And then that has been kind of a trope throughout computer science. It was famously used in the movie 2001's A Space Odyssey when the robot Hal sang the song. And often when robots end up singing a song, they use that song Daisy as that flashback to the first computer that sang the song Daisy. And then at the end of that episode... I used some guitar from my friend Sean, who's an incredible guitar player, but then I used an AI to create a new song called Daisy 2 that was influenced by that original song. Well, artificial intelligence has made some pretty big leaps recently, and so I thought it would be interesting to uh, get a new poem about daisies from an artificial intelligence, and I actually have two to share with you today. The first is just a more general poem about daisies, and let's hear that now in the voice of a robot.
3: Daisies, oh daisies, fresh and bright and true, dancing in the fields, a sight so pure and new, their petals soft and gentle, their scent so light and sweet, they bring a sense of joy and make our hearts complete, oh daisies, simple flowers, yet you bring us so much cheer, your beauty is a treasure, a treasure that is clear, so let us all embrace the magic that you bring, daisies, oh daisies, our hearts you make sing.
0: And then the second poem I have to share is uh, is an AI's take on another famous poem that I've shared with you on the show before. That poem is called This Is Just to Say by William Carlos Williams. And I think it's a really great poem. It's quite short. It's quite concise. Um, you heard it on the episode of the show when I talked about plums with my friend Chantal. And there's also a fake ad where um, we kind of took a, a play on that a poem. And that's actually kind of a tradition to take this poem, this is just to say, and alter it slightly to make it about something else or maybe a little bit comical. Uh, So I had an AI generate a new version of This Is Just to Say about daisies. So let's first hear the original one read by my wife, Carla, and then we'll end the show with an AI reading a new version of This Is Just to Say, but about daisies. Here we go.
3: This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious. So sweet, and so cold. This is just to say, I have picked the daisies that were in the garden bed. Forgive me, they were so beautiful. I couldn't resist their charms. On
0: this special one-year celebration, Mixed Greens episode of the podcast, we heard from Raluca Veshtamanu. Carla Arias, Sebi medina Tayak, and Steve Repaski. Rootbound gets support from listeners like Sherry Muhlenberg, whose favorite plant is ginger. Thanks so much for your support, Sherry. If you want to support the show, you can visit rootboundpodcast.com support. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington, who really can't believe it's been a year doing this show. I'm really looking forward for years to come. Music by Christian Kriegeskota fake ads by david lani rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside but if you can go outside and you have one don't forget your special edition rootbound public radio
3: style tote bag fake ads